From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. People are hoping the latest spike in gas prices is temporary, but some worry that they may go up even more. And while efforts to tighten mileage standards for cars have been stuck on Capitol Hill for decades, there is a new movement afoot to offer cash back to buyers of high-mileage cars. I think if we had a good fee-bait system, the cafe argument would become irrelevant. But critics say surcharges on gas guzzlers could hurt the wrong folks. Fee-baits are discriminatory against people who require large vehicles either for work or family purposes or both. Also, GM used to make a car that used no gas at all. A new documentary asks, who killed the electric car? There are a lot of suspects, and all of them have some measure of guilt. Those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, Stonyfield Farm, and Kashi, whose Day of Change tour features yoga lessons, natural food cooking demos, and an array of Kashi products. Details at Kashi.com. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Big profits for oil companies and high prices at gas stations have pumped up the rhetoric on energy policy in Washington. As a gallon of gas rose to more than $3 in many areas, profits for oil companies accelerated. Valero Refining soared 60 percent, and ExxonMobil banked nearly $8.5 billion in profits for the first quarter of 2006. House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi was quick to point a finger at the Republicans. Record prices for the American people, record giveaways, record profits for big oil companies. That's the Republican energy policy, and Americans can no longer afford it. Democrats want to tax big oil profits and make sure companies aren't gouging consumers. President Bush says he'll investigate allegations of price fixing and ease environmental regulation on some blends of gas. Other than that, the president says we should stay the course set by last year's Energy Act, which many Democrats, including Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, opposed. Since that bill was signed, what's happened to the price of energy and gasoline? It's gone up dramatically across America. That bill was a failure. I think we need to follow suit on what we have been emphasizing, particularly through the energy bill, and that is to encourage conservation, to expand domestic production, and to develop alternative sources of energy like ethanol. This is the second time in less than a year that gas prices have rocketed. Still, the movement to raise fuel economy standards for autos remains stuck in park on Capitol Hill, Most energy analysts say higher standards for corporate average fuel economy or CAFE could cut oil consumption. The Bush administration modestly increased CAFE standards for light trucks this year, but car standards date back two decades. Now there's a new route being tried around this political roadblock. Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports. CAFE standards have a proven track record for saving oil. In an eight-year span, the U.S. cut oil consumption by nearly a fifth. Oil imports fell by half, all while the economy grew. But David Friedman with the Union of Concerned Scientists says that's all in the rearview mirror of our energy history. For about 20 years, those standards really haven't gone anywhere. The political will just hasn't been there. But some politicians are exploring other ideas. One bill with bipartisan support in Congress would set a target for oil reduction, but leave open details on how to meet the target. That bill and others would also expand existing tax breaks for buying hybrid cars. 
Still others would offset health insurance costs for automakers if those companies make more fuel-efficient cars. Energy conservation guru Amory Lovins traveled from his Rocky Mountain Institute to Capitol Hill to push another idea called fee-bates. I think if we had a good fee-bait system, the cafe argument would become irrelevant. The fee-bait idea is pretty simple. A mix of fees and rebates for each class of vehicle according to fuel efficiency. So if I walk onto this car lot, I buy a gas guzzler, I'm going to pay a hefty fee. But if I pick a gas sipper, say this one here, it's uh, rated for 34 miles per gallon, well, then I get a rebate. Lovins and other proponents say if the fees and rebates are big enough to get my attention, that will put the lifetime cost of fuel for that car right up front in my decision on what car to buy. And that would harness the market in ways that current incentives do not. After a recent congressional hearing, Lovins found an unlikely ally in his fee-bait argument, former CIA director Jim Woolsey. Woolsey worries that oil dependence harms national security. The two teamed up on Ford executive Sue Siski, who was bemoaning the cost of making hybrids. We are basically subsidizing the Ford Escape, even though right now we're charging $3,400 more and there's tax incentives to help the consumers. It's costing us far more than that. So we do have to drive the cost of that down. The fee baits would be so much more effective than, than CAFE. There's, there's I mean, problems with just, that in terms of who's paying whom and, and the whole thing. Are you the right person to talk to about starting a private dialogue on fee baits? Because I'm doing that with... It's informal huddles like these in the halls of Congress that can give proposals political traction on Capitol Hill. And though Siski was noncommittal, Lovins was happy to have planted the germ of the idea with yet another auto executive. It turns out the automakers, as well as consumers, will make more money this way, uh, as some of the automakers are starting to figure out. Rebates, after all, give consumers money to buy cars. But then there are those fees. Fee-bates are discriminatory against people who require large vehicles, either for work or family purposes, or both. Aaron Shostak is spokesperson for the Alliance of Automobile Manufacturers, representing nine major car companies on three continents. A rancher who requires a heavy-duty pickup truck. It has to go over rutted terrain, has to be able to haul heavy loads, understands that they're going to make a trade-off with fuel economy in it, but requires that vehicle to do his job. And that is an unfair tax on that person. That kind of message from industry helped sidetrack previous attempts at fee-bait programs in California and Maryland, and also makes it unlikely the federal government will act. But Friedman, of the Concerned Scientists, says half a dozen states are again considering fee-baits. At the federal level, there really is no political will to honestly tackle global warming or honestly tackle oil dependence, but at the state level, that is happening. So part of the advantage is you could create a groundswell at the states by getting these fee baits out there, and then eventually maybe Washington will wake up. There are questions about the details, just how much energy would be saved, and what level of fee or rebate will change consumer behavior. Steve Nadell with the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy says he's not looking for perfection from such a program. He's looking for action. I think the key point is we've been uh, stuck in the mud for uh, almost a couple of decades now. We need to do something. We need to get this ball rolling. It's less important the exact policy or the perfect policy, but let's start to make progress. 
Conservation activists say high gas prices should bring more than just pain at the pumps. They could provide the political gas to get the U.S. serious about fuel efficiency. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. There's a documentary film making its way through the festivals this year, and its unlikely hero is winning audiences from Sundance to San Francisco. The film is called Who Killed the Electric Car? And the star is the EV1, the smart little electric two-seater from GM that was designed to be totally gas and emission-free. But as the title suggests, this story is not a happy one. In fact, it's a bit of a murder mystery. And joining me to tell us who done it is television producer Dan Bree, who reviewed the film for Grist Magazine. Dan, hello. Hi, Steve. So, Dan, give me a little setup here. Who are the cast of characters in this film? Well, the cast of characters are everyone from the oil company executives to the American consumer to the environmental activists, everyone who had a stake in a type of car being produced that can reduce pollution. You also have, of course, the car itself. The GM EV1, which was formerly introduced by the less-than-stellar name Impact, it's small, it's low-slung. It doesn't look like your typical American car. It looks more like something you'd see on a European uh, Autobahn. But uh, you have all of its supporting cast of characters, the Toyota, Honda, and uh, other electric cars that came out. Now, I don't want you to give away the ending just yet, but tell me what happens in the story. Well, the story is really about what happens when a technology comes out that threatens the status quo. And uh, what GM did was they introduced a product that essentially made all of their previous products obsolete and irrelevant. And that is a car that does not need oil on which to run. So uh, (laughs) when this car comes out, of course, you have a, a huge cadre of people on the American consumer side, the environmental side, who think to themselves, you know, great, this is the solution to all of our problems. And then, uh, meanwhile, back in uh, corporate headquarters, the companies realize that this very product that they've just introduced could spell the end to their industry. And so they basically set about trying to prevent its success. On the pollution point, I mean, yeah, the electric car doesn't pollute out of a tailpipe, but someone's got to make the electricity, and coal certainly is a form of pollution. Yes, that's true. I think what the filmmakers try to make the point of is that single-source pollution, such as you find out of an electric plant is much easier to control and regulate than multi-source pollution, which is pollution that comes out of millions of tailpipes. So the electric car, despite the fact that it runs on electricity, really is much better at reducing our uh, pollution use. What were some of the scenes in this film that really made, dare I say, an impact? (laughs) Well, some of the scenes that really gripped the audience at Sundance were uh, the scenes in which you have people at the end realizing that this car may be actually taken away from them. Uh, They had been reclaimed by GM and by the other companies who never really sold them. They only leased them uh, with the specific intent, essentially, of being able to reclaim them when they wanted. So you have these environmental activists and car activists, people who just love this car with a passion, sprinting around Los Angeles, identifying parking lots where our cars are sitting there in 10s and 20s, and when they actually are attempting to take them away... It's very, very emotional. You have these standoff scenes. It's an emotional film. It's a very emotional film. Okay, let's cut to the chase here. Who is the culprit who ultimately killed the electric car? Well, I don't want to give away the ending, but uh, let's just say that um, there are a lot of suspects, and all of them have some measure of guilt. I think that's what the filmmakers are trying to say, is that the electric car was killed by 
a number of interests, a number of entrenched interests, and in their estimation, by the collective uh, apathy of the American consumer who was essentially interested in large cars that can do everything, haul the kids around to school, drive 300 miles on a 10 tanks of gas, as it were. Uh, there's a lot of people at, at fault here, a lot of people with guilt. Dan, is, is this the final swan song for the electric car? Or, or could this film, given the high gas prices we've seen recently, help bring the EV1 or some of the electric uh, cars back to life? I think what this film is going to do is it will remind us that we have options. And I think what this may actually do is it may spur the development of alternate car companies who are smaller and who may say, hey, you know, there's a lot of people who are interested in this, and we can do a lot to protect the environment by producing these new types of cars. Dan Bree is a television producer in Northern California. Who Killed the Electric Car will be showing at the Tribeca Film Festival starting May 2nd. Dan, thanks for taking this time today. Thank you, Steve. I'm going to buy an electric car Just like I saw in a magazine I'm going to have an electric car And my engine will be burning clean Because I won't need, won't need any gasoline I won't need, won't need any gasoline Coming up, Earth Day, Latino style. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And coming up, the boss and the man with a banjo. But first, Latinos have become increasingly active in environmental causes. For many out west, the link has been asthma and air pollution. Now some political activists are trying to broaden the focus and create a Latino urban greening agenda, beginning in the sun-baked grayscape of Los Angeles. They hope to seize this moment while hundreds of thousands of Latinos are already mobilized against harsh anti-immigration proposals. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports from a bus tour of several Latino Earth Day events. So just go ahead and browse around. Huh? Yeah, help yourself to food. There's burritos, there's bread, there's coffee now. Yeah, thank you, ma'am. At Latino political events, people get fed. In the early morning, some of those arriving have already labored, planting trees along the once and future Los Angeles River, a concrete half-pipe hung with dreams. Last year, for the first time, there was a Latino Earth Day observance here, a single event. This year, there are five celebrations, so there's a bus to go between them. As it shoves off, spirits are high. The idea behind all of this is as Latinos, we have to fight to protect our environment, our air quality, our water, and community health. We must mobilize for the environment the same way we've taken action on immigration. That's Antonio Gonzalez, a major figure in Latino politics. He heads two key organizations, the Southwest Voter Registration Project and the William C. Velasquez Institute, which organized the bus caravan. Last year, we began more intensively addressing environmental issues in the, in the context uh, that we live in, right? Urban, sort of urban greening issues and, and trying to connect the socioeconomic, populist, Latino agenda, jobs, education, health care, immigration, 
with the environmental health agendas. Gonzalez says he's well aware of the need to sell his agenda to his constituents. That's why he's here today. But he says some mainstream environmental groups need to yield in their thinking, too. For example, it won't work to frame environmental problems, as some in the Sierra Club argued recently, as too many people. And they have to understand that this is a reinterpreted agenda. We have a slogan that we like to use, um, from tofu to chili verde. We're not going to eat tofu. Chili verde is just as good. Nearby in a park that residents and police have wrenched back from drug dealers, Darnell Jackson and Maynard Jimenez in the Los Angeles Conservation Corps are wishing more people would do what they do every day plant trees. Thought, what are you guys doing? We're, like, we're, we're fixing up your park. He's like, oh, that's cool. You know, they, like, they like it. So it's like, it makes me happier. It's amazing, actually, because we can look back on it later on and say, yeah, we helped do this. We helped build a community. It is a bad area, LA, you know, but we make it look decent, you know, at least. Serenading the youths from a few yards away is a group of university students from Guatemala City, another group that's pushing for parks and planting trees here. A Latino Youth Soccer Association invited the students up from Guatemala just for this event. Well, I want to welcome you to the South Central Farm. Another stop takes the caravanners to what organizers say is the largest urban community garden in the United States. The owner of this 14-acre parcel has been fighting to evict the gardeners and develop the property. Congresswoman Maxine Waters came out and walked past the fields of edible cactus and corn to greet the brown caravan and support the mostly Latino gardeners in this formerly black community. This garden... This land is so precious because not only does this land feed people, this land helps us to breathe in South Central Los Angeles. Thank you for for visiting the South Central Farm on Earth Day. Please take your plans. The bus starts for home. It's been a long day. The takeaway message organizers hope is speak up. We didn't hear you. As the saying goes in Spanish, if you don't speak up, God won't hear you. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet in Los Angeles.
Okay, don't worry. You don't have to get up and check to see if your radio tuner has slipped off its assigned frequency. This is not the Sunday Morning Gospel Hour. This is Living on Earth, and I'm Steve Kerwood, and you're listening to Bruce Springsteen singing Oh Mary, Don't You Weep from his new recording, We Shall Overcome, The Seeger Sessions. As you can hear, it's a rowdy and raucous hand clap and foot stomp and collection of classic American folk songs, along with a handful of ballads, part hootenanny, part church choir, part protest rally. For Springsteen, this new recording is a long way from Thunder Road, but it's not that much of a detour from a path that has ventured into the folk music genre from time to time and, and certainly influenced earlier works like Nebraska and The Ghost of Tom Joad. Bruce Springsteen dubbed his new work The Seeger Sessions in tribute to America's legendary folk troubadour Pete Seeger and the songs that Seeger has made famous by singing them over and over, adding lines and verses to fit the changing times over his 87 years. So we thought this would be a good opportunity to feature a piece we did on Pete Seeger a few years back so that, like Springsteen, you can get to know him too. I've lived all my life in this country I love every flower and tree I expect to live here till I'm 90 It's the nukes that must go and not me It's the nukes that must go That's Pete Seeger leading a crowd in an anti-nuclear song at a Harvard University gathering back in 1980. For some in the audience, this may be the apex of their protest days. For Pete Seeger, it's another night on the town as the nation's troubadour of conscience. America's tuning fork, some call him. For more than half a century, Pete Seeger has been leading people throughout the world in song. And in the process, he's become a walking history of folk music and social activism. In the 1930s and 40s, you'd find him and his famous banjo on a union picket line. Now you want higher wages, let me tell you what to do. Got to talk to the workers in the shop with you. You got to build you a union, got to make it strong. But if you all stick together, boys, don't be long. You got shorter hours. Better working conditions. Vacations with pay. Take your kids to the seashore. Singing songs with outspoken political views led Pete Seeger in 1955 to the House Un-American Activities Committee. Congress wanted him to testify about alleged communist affiliations. Name names, it was called. Mr. Seeger refused, was ordered to jail, and blacklisted. An appeals court blocked his prison term, and Pete Seeger kept on singing. In the 1960s, it was songs for civil rights and against the war in Vietnam. The sergeant said, sir, are you sure this is the best way back to the base? Sergeant, go on, I forded this river about a mile above this place. It'll be a little soggy, but just keep slogging, we'll soon be on dry ground. We were waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. And ever since then, it's been the environment. In 1969, with the help of other musicians and activists, Pete Seeger built a sloop he christened the Clearwater, because that was his intention, to clear the waters of the Hudson River of pollution and garbage. Pete Seeger lives on the Hudson, in a small, quiet town called Beacon, about an hour north of New York City, and just 30 miles from where he was born. 
For decades, he and his neighbors have met on the river's banks at the Sloop Club to socialize and organize over potluck suppers. He's asked us to meet him there, where it's his turn to set up for this month's gathering. A bright red pickup truck loaded with logs and plywood pulls up. A tall, wiry man with a white beard and glasses jumps out. Hope you haven't been waiting too long. Nope, how are you? Pete Seeger has lived eight decades, but he moves with the ease and energy of someone who still has a lot to do. Mr. Seeger, you got here a Ford Ranger, except it didn't make much noise when you pulled out. I bought it for $8,000. A school teacher who teaches electricity wanted to learn more about electric cars, so he made his own electric car. And he put into it a 28-horsepower electric motor and 20 six-volt batteries. Can I see another one? Not much here. Uh, No, except Except a sign that says, Caution, wear rubber gloves, you could be electrocuted. Right. There's like 400 amps. For me, it's perfect. I, I live on a very steep mountainside, and I'm always carrying rocks and logs... And with the low range and four-wheel drive, I can inch up the steepest kind of slope with a ton of logs. It can go a foot a minute if I want to go that slowly because I just feed in more or less power with the accelerator. I'd be burning out the clutch if I was using a regular gasoline car. Let's go over here by the, your docks here out of the water and we can chat a bit. What a place for a sunset, huh? This waterfront was a tangle of weeds and the river was like an open sewer 30 years ago when the Clearwater started. And little by little, it's gotten better. That, that park over there was our big victory. We, we petitioned and petitioned, and people laughed at us, but by gosh, the petitions finally had an effect. And a little city money and a lot of federal and state money, a million dollars to make a park out of seven and a half acres of, of garbage. Ah. <laughs> um... Pete Seeger, how'd you get involved in environmental concerns? It was Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Spring. I read it in The New Yorker, in installments. Up to then, I'd thought the main job to do was help the meek inherit the earth. And still, that's a job that's got to be done. But I realized if we didn't do something soon, what the meek would inherit would be a pretty poisonous place to live. And so I made almost a 180-degree turn, started reading books like The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich or The Poverty of Power by Barry Commoner. I'm a readaholic, and I was reading a book about the sailboats that sailed here, oh, all during the 19th century. Alexander Hamilton wrote one of the Federalist papers on his way to Poughkeepsie in a sloop where they were arguing whether or not to uh, sign the Constitution idea and agree to it. Well, I write a letter to my friend. Wouldn't it be great to build a replica of one of these? It'd probably cost $100,000. Nobody we know has that money, but if we got uh, 1,000 people together, we could all chip in and maybe we could hire a skilled captain to see it run safely and the rest of us could volunteer. And three years later, the sloop Clearwater was built up in Maine and I helped sail it down with Don McLean and a batch of other singers. And now it takes school kids out. It's not a rich man's cruise boat. It, two or three times a day, takes groups of 50 school kids out, teaches them what makes rivers dirty and what's got to be done to clean them up. 
of course, people say, what can a sailboat do? It can't do much except bring people together. But when people come together, that's when miracles happen, right? What do you think it's done for the river? It drew attention to it in such a friendly way that people couldn't help getting attracted. In the little town of Cold Spring, south of here, there were some very conservative people who thought it was a communist treasonous project because I was involved with it. And uh, <laughs> Aren't you communist, Pete Seeger? Well, I tell p- uh, people at age seven <laughs> I became a communist when I read about American Indians. And anthropologists, uh, that's the term they use for the way our ancestors lived anywhere in the world. The men hunted, the women gathered berries and dug for roots and carried babies on their back. And if somebody killed something to eat, the meat was shared. That's communism. I admit it seems romantic to want to go back to that, but I really do believe that if there is a world here, if there's a human race here in 100 years, we will have learned how to share again. Indeed. Well, down in this little town, a man came down to see the clear water, and he beckoned to me. He said, Seeger, can I talk to you a minute? I said, sure. He said, I don't want you to think I agree with you, not one-tenth of one percent. But that sure is a beautiful boat. He couldn't take his eyes off it. 106 foot tall, the mast goes up. I call it a symphony of curves. There are hardly any straight lines on a sailboat and very few right angles. Curves, curves. (laughs) Sailing down my golden river Sun and water all my own Yet I was never alone Sun and water, old life givers I'll have them wherever I roam And I was not far from home That was the first Hudson River song I wrote the Clearwater had not been built. I'd, I hadn't even thought of the idea. I was sailing a little plastic boat, and there I f- looked at the water beneath me. There was lumps of this and that floating by with the toilet paper. And the phrase of John Kenneth Galbraith came to mind. Private affluence, public squalor. I had money to buy this little plastic boat. We had money to go to the moon, but didn't have money to keep the rivers clean. And later on, I was sailing by myself, and I saw the sun go down. The the sky turned from uh, yellow to pink to purple to midnight blue. And I had sailing down my golden river, sun and water all my own. But I was never alone. We'll be back with more music and musing from Pete Seeger in just a minute or so, so keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and Kashi, whose Day of Change tour features yoga lessons, natural food cooking demos, and an array of Kashi products. Details at Kashi.com. The Kresge Foundation, investing in nonprofits to help them catalyze growth, connect to stakeholders, and challenge greater support. On the web at kresge.org. The Annenberg Fund, for excellence in communications and education. 
the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, From Vision to Innovative Impact, 75 Years of Philanthropy. This is NPR, National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We continue now with our story on the life, times, and music of Pete Seeger. And we pick up with Pete's recollection of the origins of one environmentally-minded song he likes to sing called Garbage. Let's talk about some other songs. Garbage. This was written by a young fellow named Bill Steele, who has for years been the head of the Folk Song Club up in Ithaca, New York. But he wrote it in San Francisco when he was visiting there. And it became an underground hit. There must be thousands of people all around the country who know this song and sing it. I added a verse. A friend of mine had written the first part of the verse. In Mr. Thompson's factory, they're making plastic Christmas trees complete with silver tinsel and a geodesic stand. (laughs) The plastic's mixed in giant vats from some conglomeration that's been piped from deep within the earth or strip-mined from the land. Well, then he went on to say, and so the water gets dirty in Long Island Sound, but I, I changed the words. And if you question anything, they say, why don't you see? It's absolutely needed for the economy. (laughs) Garbage, garbage, garbage. Their stocks and their bonds, all garbage. What will they do when their system goes to smash? There's no value to their cash. There's no money to be made, but there's a world to be repaid. Their kids will read in history books about financiers and other crooks and feudalism and slavery and nukes and all their knavery. To history's dustbin there consigned, along with many other kinds of garbage, garbage, garbage. You know, I drew blood with that verse. I sang it on the Today Show once. And uh, Fortune magazine says, Esso was sponsoring that program. Do they know what songs are being sung with their money? <laughs> <laughs> and they quoted the verse I sung. <laughs> I don't necessarily like to draw blood. I'd rather... Uh, persuade people to laugh and eventually agree that maybe I got a little right on this side. Incidentally, the only way I got it on the Today Show was by, I have to confess, a little bit of devious preparation. I knew the NBC wouldn't be happy about me singing it. I come in at 6.30 in the morning. They said, Pete, what are you going to sing? I said, well, I got a cheerful little banjo tune. I got something else a little more serious. Well, let's hear them. Played the banjo tune. Fine. What's the other? I sang Garbage. They said, well, Pete's a little early in the morning. Got something else? I was prepared. I sang, walking down death row. said, Pete, do you have something else? If a revolution comes to my country. (laughs) Well, Pete, I guess we better stick with garbage. (laughs) The whole studio broke up. The cameramen, the prop men. (laughs) Yes, we'll stick with garbage. Mr. Thompson starts his Cadillac, winds it down the freeway track, leaving friends and neighbors in a hydrocarbon haze. He's joined by lots of smaller cars, all sending gases to the stars, there to form a seething cloud that hangs for 30 days. And the sun licks down into it with an ultraviolet tongue, turns it into smog, then it settles in our lungs, oh, Garbage, garbage. We're filling up the sky with garbage. What will we do when there's nothing left to breathe but garbage? 
You spent a lot of time with, with Woody Guthrie. I'm thinking of Woody Guthrie's song, Roll on Columbia, in which he speaks in such glowing terms of the, of the dams that are there. Yeah. I think Woody was around now. He would find some funny song. He was wonderful at combining tragedy and humor all in one song. He did have a funny verse. Them salmon fish are pretty shrewd. They got politicians, too. Run every four years. <laughs> What's the most important thing when it comes to the environment? I tell people, work in your local community. The world's going to be saved by people who fight for their homes. Now, there may be glamorous places to go to, far across the ocean and so on, but really, the world's going to be saved by people who fight for their homes. Is there a song that, you, that you'd like to talk about in connection with, you know, working in your own community, working in your town to make the environment better? Well, a lot of songs are about it. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. It's the garden song written by fellow up in the state of Maine, and Arlo Guthrie and I and lots of others have recorded it. I've also written a, a little song I'd sing on the general subject of praying, because I think church people and non-church people should find ways to get together. It was just about a year ago, a little over a year ago, I was out getting wood uh, to start the morning fire. We heat our house with wood and I look up and see the sun poking itself up over the mountain. Early in the morning, I first see the sun. I say a little prayer for the world. Hope all the little children live a long, long time. Every little boy and little girl. Hope to learn to laugh at the way some precious old words seem to change. Because that's what life is all about. To arrange and rearrange and rearrange and have a little chorus. Oh, we, oh, why to rearrange and rearrange and rearrange? Oh, we, oh, why to rearrange and rearrange and rearrange? You get the audience singing it. Come on, you guys. <laughs> you have to help me out Come on, next time. Out. Well, I, it's like a zipper song. Anything nice that happens, you can have a new verse. For me, it was ten and a half years ago. 1 a.m., our son in law, Shabazz, knocks on the door. The baby's coming. I said, have you called the midwife? Yes, yes, she's bringing two friends. Well, so we called up a couple of friends. It was a party for three and a half hours. Our daughter beamed like she was in heaven, and then occasionally she let out a shriek and then beamed some more. <laughs> and after three and a half hours, her firstborn, who was six years old at the time, says, I see the head, I see the head. Heard the first yowl of a brand new baby and said a little prayer for the world. Hope all the little children live a long, long time. Yes, every little boy and little girl. Hope they learn to laugh at the way some precious old words do seem to change. Cause that's what life is all about. To arrange and rearrange and rearrange. Sing it with me. Oh, we, oh, why to rearrange and rearrange and rearrange. Oh, we, oh, why to rearrange, rearrange, rearrange. Well, sometimes I wake in the middle of the night and rub my aching old eyes. Is that a voice from inside my head, or does it come down from the skies? There's a time to laugh, but there's a time to weep, a time to make a big change. Wake up, you bum, the time has come to rearrange and rearrange and rearrange. Sing it again. Oh, wait, oh, why, rearrange, rearrange, rearrange. Oh, wait, oh, why, rearrange, rearrange, rearrange. <laughs> I've tried to write lots of songs, but I have to admit that it's 
one thing to try and write a song and another thing to write one good enough for people to want to remember and sing. Woody Guthrie wrote a thousand songs, and there's maybe a dozen which will be widely sung. And a, a friend of mine had started a small record company. He says, Pete, would you be able to put out a, a record of some of your own songs? I said, my voice is gone. It's too wobbly, too raggedy. When I stand on the stage, mainly what I do is get the audience singing. I accompany them. I line out the hymn, as they say in church. But he said, what if I get other people to sing them? Well, I said, fine, if you can find them. Well, by gosh, he got some awful well-known singers, Bruce Springsteen and Bonnie Raitt and Billy Bragg and Judy Collins and a whole lot of others, put out two CDs, mainly of songs that I wrote. And other songs, like We Shall Overcome, all I did was make an arrangement of them. gospel song, quite well known. I'll overcome, I'll overcome, I'll overcome someday. Well, 300 women were on strike in 1946. It's in winter, and I guess on the picket line they probably had a barrel with a little fire in it, and people were warming their hands and singing old gospel songs to keep their courage up. And one woman, Lucille Simmons by name, loved this song, but she sang it what they call long meter style. And she changed one word. I'll became now we. And she said, we will overcome. Now, if you church people know how to harmonize, and the basses get the low notes, and the sopranos get the high notes, and you weave in and out. And a group of people can make beautiful music uh, just improvising with each other. It became one of their favorite strike songs, We Will Overcome Someday. Well, a white woman, a union organizer, Zilphia Horton by name, she learned it from the strikers and became her favorite song. Anyway, I spread the song around the country, but I didn't have a good voice like that, those two women. So I gave it a banjo accompaniment. I got audiences in town hall and others singing it, but it didn't really spread. Until 1960, a young friend of mine, Guy Carawan by name, had a workshop called Singing in the Movement. And some 70 young people from Texas to Florida to Virginia gathered at that little Highlander school and swapped songs for a weekend and made up new verses and so on. And when Guy taught them this song, they said, Oh, Guy, you got a song here. And Guy had started giving it a kind of rhythm 
which now everybody knows. It's uh, musicians call it twelve-eight time. That is four beats, but each four beat is divided up in three little beats. One two three. One two three. One two three. One two three four. huge arguments. People who call themselves environmentalists don't always agree. One says, don't have any dams. But uh, along comes a man who says, we have a lot of small dams, they won't do any damage, or not enough, and saves burning fossil fuels. Who knows what's going to happen? All I know is I wish I could live another 30 or 40 years, because some of the most exciting things are going to happen. When I meet people who say, oh, there's no hope, look at the things that are going wrong. And those stupid people in Bosnia, they're going to be things like that all around the world. Where Power-hungry people says, I know how to handle this. Just give me the bomb. There's no hope. But I say to them, I said, did you think that our great Watergate president would leave office the way he did? They said, no, I guess I didn't think that. I said, did you think that the Berlin Wall would come down so peacefully? Oh, I didn't think that would happen, yeah. I said, did you think Mandela would be president of South Africa? No, I didn't predict that. Well, if you couldn't predict those three things, then don't be so confident that there's no hope. And I give him, I give him a bumper sticker. It says, there's no hope, but I may be wrong. <laughs> Pete Seeger, thanks so much for taking this time with us on Living on Earth today. Thank you for inviting me. What's it say on your banjo here? It says, This machine surrounds hate and forces it to surrender. I hope. Well, may the world go, the world go, the world go. Well, may the world go when I'm far away. Well, may the skiers turn, the swimmers learn, the lovers burn. Peace, may the generals learn when I'm far away. Well, may the world go, the world go, the world go. Well, may the world go when I'm far away. 
Our visit with Pete Seeger was produced by Eileen Belinsky and Jesse Wagner. Sweet may the fiddle sound, the banjo play the old hold-down dancers swing round and round when I'm far away. Well, may the world go, the world go, the world go. Well, may the world go when I'm far away. Fresh may the breezes blow, clear may the streams flow, blue above and green below when I'm far away. Well, may the world go, the world go, the world go. Well, may the world go when I'm far away. This week, ringing in the month of May. Stephen Feld recorded the festivities that are held in Oslo, Norway each year to celebrate May Day, the International Day of the Worker. is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Chris Ballman, Jennifer Chu, and Bruce Gellerman with help from Christopher Bolick, Kelly Cronin, and James Kerwood. Our interns are Bobby Bascom and Emily Taylor. Our technical director is Dennis Foley. Allison Dean composed our themes. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. Kashi, whose Day of Change tour features yoga lessons, natural food cooking demos, and an array of Kashi products. Details at kashi.com. Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. This is NPR, National Public Radio.